0: I'd like you to turn with me in your Bibles to Acts chapter 28. We've come in our study through the book of Acts to the last chapter, but as we'll see, it doesn't end like you would expect the last chapter to end. It doesn't tell us how Paul's trial turned out. It doesn't tell us whether Paul was executed or not. It doesn't tell us whether Paul got released and lived happily ever after. In fact, it doesn't end with a period, it ends with a dot, dot, dot. It doesn't end like Bugs Bunny, that's all, folks. It ends with a to be continued. Because, you see, this is not the story of Paul. It's the story of the church. And the story of the church is not yet completed And so in Acts chapter 28, it's not really the last chapter. It's simply the last page of the first chapter of church history. And many other chapters have been written and are still being written today. And so it should be no surprise to us in this last chapter that the church is still growing and expanding We see that expansion geographically as Paul finally reaches the city of Rome. And we also see that expansion ethnically. As in this last chapter, Paul interacts with four groups of people. Gentiles, Christians, Jews, and then anybody and everybody else. And that will be our outline for looking at this chapter this morning. First of all, we see how Gentiles responded to Paul in verses 1 to 10. And when they had been brought safely through, then we found out that the island was called Malta. Now, at the close of chapter 27, the ship Paul was lost at sea on for 14 days, finally came near some land, got stuck on a reef, the ship began to come apart, and Paul, along with the 275 other passengers, abandoned ship. Some swam to shore, others floated in on planks and debris. And it was only after they were safely on shore that they realized that they were on the island called Malta. It was located about 60 miles south of Sicily. It's a rather small island, only 17 miles long and 7 miles wide. And its name means place of refuge, which is what it became for each one of these passengers. Verse 2, and the natives showed us extraordinary kindness for because of the rain that it set in and because of the cold, they kindled a fire and received us all. Now the term natives literally means barbarians, but that doesn't mean that they were primitive or uncivilized. The Roman world used that term for any group of people that didn't speak Greek or Latin. In fact, their reaction on this occasion shows us that they were anything but uncivilized because Luke says they were not only showing us kindness, they were showing us extraordinary kindness. They, be, they went beyond what was expected. They apparently saw the ship stuck out there. They saw the people coming in. They went out and helped them to the land. And because it was raining, they welcomed them in. Because it was cold, they started a fire to warm them and dry them. And then two incidents happened that got their attention. The first is in verses 3 to 6. It says, But when Paul had gathered a bundle of sticks and had laid them on the fire, a viper came out because of the heat and fastened on his hand. Paul was out gathering sticks for the fire. Now that tells you something about the apostle Paul because no one would have expected the passengers who were cold and tired and weary from a two-week ordeal on the sea to leave the warmth of the fire and go out and pick up sticks. And if any of the passengers had gone out to pick up sticks, it surely wouldn't have been Paul because he was the hero. He was the John Wayne who had intervened to deliver everybody on the ship. And if you've watched the movies, John Wayne and Clint Eastwood don't pick up sticks. But you see, the servants of God do. Because they have the mind of Christ, who came not to be served, but to serve. And so no task is too small. And while Paul is out gathering sticks, he gets more than just wood Amidst the sticks, he picks up a viper that apparently, because of the cold, is lying dormant. And when he puts it on the fire, it warms up, comes to, comes out, and latches onto Paul's hand. Verse 4, And when the natives saw the creature hanging from his hand, they began saying to one another, Undoubtedly this man is a murderer, and though he has been saved from the sea, justice has not allowed him to live. Now, critics have looked at this passage and said that Luke must be mistaken. He must have assumed this was a poisonous snake, but it was actually a harmless one. And their argument is based on the fact that there are no poisonous snakes on the island of Malta today. But that doesn't mean there weren't poisonous snakes on Malta 1,900 years ago. And I think Luke, who is a trained physician who dealt with snake bites, would know the difference between a poisonous snake and a harmless snake. And I think beyond that, the most convincing evidence is that the islanders fully expected Paul to die from this bite. In fact, they had a theological reason. Justice must be served. Anybody who barely escapes drowning from sea, gets into shore, and gets bitten by a poisonous snake must deserve to die. And they could tell Paul was a prisoner because he's being guarded by Roman soldiers, and so they assume he must be a murderer. Now this is a good illustration of the truth that all people, even those without the law of God, have a sense of right and wrong. Paul wrote in Romans chapter 2 and verse 15 that even the Gentiles who do not have the law have it written on their hearts. Verse 5. However, he shook the creature off into the fire and suffered no harm. Now, I think Paul shows an amazing sense of calm here. I have never been bitten by a snake, but I can imagine my reaction. And Paul doesn't just sling this thing into the crowd. He, he carefully shakes it off into the fire. And it tells us he wasn't harm and harmed. In fact, we get the impression that he wasn't even surprised. Why not? We have to remember, Paul has just been through the storm at sea. He's just been through the shipwreck. And in that situation, as we said last week, he sensed the purpose of God, the presence of God, and the protection of God. And that's what trials do in our lives. It builds our faith. And so here's Paul coming off the shipwreck, and now a a snake bites him, and he says, that's not going to faze me. That's just another trial. God already promised him he would stand before Caesar in Rome, and so he knows he's not going to fall over dead on the island of Malta. His confidence is in God. And then verse 6. But they were expecting that he was about to swell up or suddenly fall down dead. But after they had waited a long time and had seen nothing unusual happen to him, they changed their minds and began to say that he was a God. The crowds were standing around waiting for the inevitable. I mean, they've seen this before. He's going to swell up and then he's just going to fall over dead. A year ago when I was in Africa, I saw a fellow who was coming to the clinic who had been bitten by a poisonous snake and his entire arm and hand was swollen up to the point that it looked like it was just going to explode. That's what they expected to happen to Paul. And when it didn't happen, they said he must be a god. Popular opinion is fickle, isn't it? One minute he's a murderer. The next minute, he's a God. Now, Luke doesn't tell us any more about this incident, but that doesn't mean that nothing else happened. I think Luke expects us to fill in the blanks based on what had already happened in the book of Acts. For example, we know from the book of Acts that Paul couldn't have just stood there and let the people call him God. Because in Acts chapter 12, we're told that Herod let the people of Tyre and Sidon call him a god, and he was struck down dead. And in Acts chapter 14, the people of Lystra wanted to worship Paul and Barnabas as gods. And what did Paul and Barnabas do? They tore their robes. That was so abhorrent. And they directed them to the true God and shared the gospel with them. And we can be confident that that's what Paul did on this occasion as well. In fact, later in this chapter, he's going to share with the Jews, and there he uses the Old Testament Scriptures. But with these Gentiles who didn't have that foundation, God establishes Paul's credibility by a miracle. The first one is this snake bite, and then there's a second one in verses 7 to 10. It says, Now in the neighborhood of that place were lands belonging to the leading man of the island named Publius, who welcomed us and entertained us courteously, three days. Not far from the beach where they came ashore, there was a man named Publius who owned lands. He is called here the leading man of the island. That doesn't mean he was simply the top dog socially or economically, though he may have been. This phrase means he was the leader politically. He was essentially the governor of the island. And so he extended hospitality to these 276 stranded passengers. He extends it for three days until they can find adequate accommodations for the winter. Verse 8, and it came about that the father of Publius was lying in bed afflicted with recurrent fever and dysentery, and Paul went in to see him, and after he had prayed, he laid his hands on him and healed him. Publius's hospitality is even more impressive when you consider that his father is lying in bed with a fever and dysentery. That word dysentery literally means bad bowels. He had a painful intestinal inflammation that apparently had an infection that was resulting in fever. And I'm sure the other guests were making every effort to stay away from him. But what does Paul do? He seeks him out. Which again tells you something about the Apostle Paul. He is drawn to people in need. And the first thing that he does when he comes into the room is to pray, showing his dependence upon God. And I think it's also showing us that Paul was not presuming that God was going to heal this man any more than he presumed that God was going to deliver everybody on the ship. And so he comes in to pray... To discern God's will in this situation, also to ask for God's power in this situation, and then he places his hand on the man and he was healed. And not surprisingly, verse 9 says, And after this had happened, the rest of the people on the island who had diseases were coming to him and getting cured. They were lining up at the door to bring their diseased people to the Apostle Paul and they were being cured. And again, Luke doesn't mention it, but undoubtedly Paul preached the gospel on this occasion because the purpose of miracles was to authenticate Paul as God's messenger. In fact, according to tradition, Publius was the first convert on the island of Malta and a church was established there during Paul's three-month stay. And that's sort of implied in verse 10 where it says, And they also honored us with many marks of respect. And when we were setting sail, they supplied us with all we needed. When Paul and the others arrived, they were shown extraordinary kindness. But when they leave, they are shown honor and respect and love. Paul and Luke and Aristarchus had lost everything at sea. These people provided all of their needs. Which brings us to the second group that Paul deals with in this chapter, and that is Christians in verses 11 to 15. And at the end of three months, we set sail on an Alexandrian ship which had wintered at the island and which had the twin brothers for its figurehead. After waiting for the three months of winter when it was impossible to sail, they hitched a ride on another ship that had wintered on the island of Malta. It was also an Alexandrian ship from Egypt. And Luke adds that it had the twin brothers for its figurehead. Now, figureheads were carved on the bow of the ship. They were used to identify ships. They were also used to honor those gods who supposedly protected that ship. In this case, he says it was the twin brothers. That would be Castor and Pollux, the sons of Zeus in Greek mythology. Now, I'm not sure why Luke gives us this detail except that it points out us to us how paltry these gods are in comparison to the God of heaven who had protected them on the previous ship. Verse 12, and after we put in at Syracuse, we stayed there for three days. Syracuse is about 80 miles north of Malta on the southeast shore of Sicily. Verse 13, and from there we sailed around and, and arrived at... Regium, and a day later, a south wind sprang up, and on the second day, we came to Potoli. Regium was another 70 miles north on the southern tip of the Italian peninsula. In fact, it's a port on the toe of the boot of Italy. And it says when they got a favorable south wind, then they came up the west coast of Italy to Potoli, which was a city of about 100,000 people near modern-day Naples. You say, well, why didn't they go right into Rome? Well, apparently this was the port city for these Egyptian grain ships to come to. And so they arrived at this port city. They're still 130 miles from Rome, but they get off the ship at this point. Verse 14, there we found some brethren and were invited to stay with them for seven days. And thus we came to Rome. Have you noticed that Paul has a nose for Christians? They stop at this city he's never been to before. And he finds these Christians and he stays with them for seven days. Verse 15. And the brethren, when they heard about us, came from there as far as the market of Appius and the three inns to meet us. And when Paul saw them, he thanked God and took courage. After staying for seven days in Petoli... Apparently, giving the Roman centurion time to carry out some business, they continued their journey to Rome, which means that they would have walked down the Appian Way, which is the first paved road that the Romans built. It's still there today. And you can walk on the very road that Paul walked on, and you can enter the city of Rome by the very gate that he probably entered by. And we're told here that the Christians found out he was coming. Now, how did they know he was coming? Well, apparently, during his seven day stay there, somebody went on ahead to Rome to tell them. And what they did was they started out to meet the Apostle Paul. And he says one group came out to the Forum of Appius. That would be the market of Appius, kind of a 7 Eleven out there on the what? And they went out 43 miles from Rome. To meet him. And then it says there was a second group that came out about 33 miles to the three taverns or three shops to meet him as well. And so Paul's coming along, and at 43 miles from Rome, he sees a group of Christians, and then he walks on another 10 miles and he runs into another group of Christians coming out to greet him. Which tells you that some saints will go farther than others. But notice the end of verse 15. It says, and when Paul saw them, he thanked God and took courage. What an encouragement to the Apostle Paul. He's never been to Rome. He wrote them a letter about three years ago, the epistle to the Romans. And now as he's coming to Rome, 43 miles away, he gets his response to that letter. These group of Christians come out to greet him and encourage him. And you know, if Paul had any uneasiness about coming to the great city of Rome, if he had any uneasiness or fear about standing before Caesar there, it had to be erased when he saw these groups of believers. And if you read Romans chapter 16, you will find the names of many of these believers. And among those names, you will find a couple familiar ones, old friends of Paul's, Aquila and Priscilla who were now in Rome, and I'm sure were out there beside the road, encouraging him as he comes to Rome. Then we see the third group he dealt with, and that's the Jews, in verses 16 to 29. And when we entered Rome, Paul was allowed to stay by himself with the soldier who was guarding him. When Paul got to Rome, they didn't throw him in a prison cell. Instead, they put him in a kind of house arrest Verse 28 tells us he was staying in a rented house. This verse tells us he was guarded by a Roman soldier. And verse 20 tells us that he was chained, apparently chained to that soldier. And he apparently got this kind of treatment, number one, because he had not yet been convicted of a crime. In fact, it wasn't even clear what the charges were against him. And number two, because Julius the centurion probably put in a good word with the emperor. Verse 17, and it happened that after three days, he called together those who were the leading men of the Jews. Now, Paul's limited freedom didn't allow him to travel, but it did allow him to have company. And it didn't take him long to use that privilege. After only three days, he calls for the Jewish leaders. That would be the prominent men from the synagogues. Now, why does he call them first? Well, because that's Paul's pattern. In Romans chapter 1 and verse 16, he says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. But you know, on this occasion, Paul doesn't begin by preaching the gospel to these Jews. Instead, he starts somewhere else. Because you see, he is chained to a soldier. So it's going to be difficult for him to share the gospel without first explaining why he's a prisoner. You see, your walk needs to back up your talk. And on this occasion, Paul knows that his audience is going to be preoccupied with his chains. So he starts by explaining why he's a prisoner. Verse 17, And when they had come together, he began saying to them, Brethren, though I had done nothing against our people or the customs or our fathers, yet I was delivered prisoner from Jerusalem into the hands of the Romans. What had Paul done to become a prisoner? He tells us right here. I did nothing against our people or the customs or our forefathers. Verse 18. And when they had examined me, they were willing to release me because there was no ground for putting me to death. Paul says, I stood trial before the Roman authorities. They found no grounds at all to put me to death. And they were going to release me. Verse 19. But when the Jews objected, I was forced to appeal to Caesar. The only reason I'm in Rome is because the Jews objected to that Roman decision and I had to appeal to Caesar. And then he adds at the end of verse 19, not that I had any accusation against my nation. Paul lets them know that his actions were strictly defensive and not offensive. He is not in Rome to bring accusations against the Jews. Now, that's pretty amazing. Because the Jews had hounded Paul. They had driven him out of city after city. They had beaten him. They had stoned him. They had slandered him. He has just spent the last two years in prison because of their lies. And this is the same guy about whom it says in Acts 9-1, he was breathing threats and murder. This is not the kind of guy you wanted to cross. He breathed threats. And yet here we hear him saying, I have no accusations against him. No resentment, no vindictiveness. What an expression of the power of the grace of God in his life. And then verse 20. For this reason, therefore, I requested to see you and to speak with you, for I am wearing this chain for the sake of the hope of Israel. And here Paul narrows it down to the real issue behind his chains. He says, I'm wearing them for the sake of the hope of Israel. Israel's hope was the coming of her Messiah and the resurrection and the kingdom. And Paul says, I am in prison because I preached that Jesus is the resurrected King. And that has been his theme throughout his defense Before the Sanhedrin in Acts 23, he said the same thing. Before Felix in Acts 24, he said the same thing. Before Agrippa in Acts 26, he said the same thing. And now he says it again. I am on trial for the hope of Israel. But he's not going to talk about that hope today. He's just going to set the table for it. Verse 21. And they said to him, We have neither received letters from Judah concerning you, nor have any of the brethren come here and reported or spoken anything bad about you. Apparently, no word had come from Jerusalem to Rome. You say, well, how could that be? Well, one reason would be a lack of time. Paul had left Palestine on one of the last ships in the previous traveling season And he arrived on one of the first ships in the present sailing season. And so it would have been difficult to beat Paul to Rome. And in that day, they didn't have the communication we do today. They didn't have CNN and cell phones and email. And Rome was about 2,000 miles away from Jerusalem. So So to correspond was difficult. But you know, there's another reason, and that is that the Jews in Rome... We're walking on eggshells at this point in time. You remember back in Acts 18.2, it says that Claudius the emperor had the Jews expelled from Rome. Now apparently that was only temporary. Now they're back in Rome, but they know that their relationship with the Romans is not real solid. It's going to come to a head a little later on when, when Jerusalem is destroyed by the Roman authority. And so they know that they're not in a posture in Rome to be on the offensive. They've got to be careful. They've got to be careful with what they do. And so for them, the idea of going in before the emperor for any reason at all was not a positive thought. And so they don't even want to know about Paul. They don't even want to follow him up in the city of Rome. And then verse 22. But we desire to hear from you what your views are. For concerning this sect, it is known to us that it is spoken against everywhere. They say, we haven't heard of you, Paul, but we have heard about this sect. I mean, it's spoken against everywhere, and we would like to know more about it. Now, does that sound like an invitation Paul would pass up? No. Verse 23, And when they had set a day for him, they came to him at his lodging in large numbers, and he was explaining to them by solemnly testifying about the kingdom of God and by trying to persuade them concerning Jesus from both the law of Moses and from the prophets from morning until evening. They agreed on a day. The Jews showed up in large number, and it says Paul preached from morning until evening. And what did he preach from? The law and the prophets. And what was his point? That Jesus is the Messiah who fulfills the Old Testament Scriptures and that they could enter the kingdom of God by faith in Him. Clear message. Verse 24. And some were being persuaded by the things spoken, but others would not believe. Their response to Paul was mixed. Some were persuaded, others were not. Which shouldn't surprise us. Because the gospel always divides. Jesus said in Luke twelve fifty one, Do you suppose that I came to grant peace on the earth? I tell you, no, but rather division. For from now on, five members in one household will be divided. Three against two and two against three. And then verse 25. And when they did not agree with one another, they began leaving after Paul had spoken one parting word. The Holy Spirit rightly spoke through Isaiah the prophet to your father's saying. As the Jews were leaving after an entire day of listening to the gospel, Paul had one final thing to say to those who did not believe. And he simply quoted a verse. Just as he uses the Old Testament scriptures to show that Jesus was the Messiah, he now uses the Old Testament scriptures to show why they have rejected. And he says, These words from Isaiah 6 are talking about you. Go to this people and say, You will keep on hearing, but will not understand. And you will keep on seeing, but will not perceive. For the heart of this people has become dull, and with their ears they scarcely hear. And they have closed their eyes, lest they should see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and turn again, and I should heal them. What was God saying about Israel? That they would hear, but not understand. That they would see, but not perceive. And Paul says, you people are a living illustration of this. Because if anybody in Israel should have possessed an understanding spirit, it was the Jewish leaders and yet their hearts were dull and hard. And Paul says God predicted that. But you know, their unbelief didn't put an end to Paul's ministry because he says in verse 28, Let it be known to you, therefore, that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. They will also listen. You know, without the book of Acts... We would turn from the Gospel of John to the book of Romans and we would ask the question, how did the Gospel get from the Jews in Jerusalem to the Gentiles in Rome? The book of Acts answers that question. It shows us the progress of the Gospel to the uttermost parts of the earth. Which brings us to the fourth category of people and that is anybody and everybody. Verse 30. And he stayed two full years in his own rented quarters and was welcoming all who came to him, preaching the kingdom of God and teaching concerning the Lord Jesus Christ with all openness unhindered. For two full years, Paul remained a prisoner in his own rented quarters in Rome. You say, well, why did he have to wait two full years? Well, I'm sure delays were not uncommon as they had a backlog of cases. Paul's records were probably destroyed in the shipwreck, and so they probably had to have them resent from Caesarea, and Festus wasn't any too anxious to rewrite those accusations. And Roman law required that Paul got to face his accusers. And so that would mean that they were probably waiting on the Jewish leaders from Jerusalem to come to Rome. You say, well, what did Paul do for those two years? Well, though he wasn't free to leave his quarters... He could welcome anybody who came. And what did he do? Verse 31 tells us he preached the kingdom of God and taught concerning the Lord Jesus Christ. And in Philippians chapter 1 and verse 12, Paul says that his imprisonment on this occasion resulted in the greater progress of the gospel. Paul accomplished more in chains than he could have if he had been free. You say, well, how did he do that? Philippians 1.13 says that Paul was able to evangelize the entire praetorian guard. Some have suggested that Paul would have been chained to a soldier for six hours at a time. That would have meant he had four soldiers a day chained to him. If they rotated through, that would mean in the course of two years, he could have had nearly 3,000 soldiers chained to him. Now, what was Paul doing? He was preaching the gospel. Who was hearing? The soldiers were. And so they were being saved, they were being discipled, and they were going out as evangelists. And when you get to the end of the book of Philippians, chapter 4 and verse 22, sends greetings from Caesar's household. And so these soldiers had actually reached people in the household of the emperor. And during this same time, Paul wrote the letters of Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon, something he may have never taken the time to sit down and do if he had not been incarcerated. What did he do after these two years? Most Bible students believe that he was released. Two Roman government, governors had already found him not guilty, and so it's reasonable to assume that the emperor found him not guilty as well, or a more likely scenario is that the Jewish leaders from Jerusalem probably never showed up. And so Paul's case was simply dropped. There may have, in fact, been a two-year statute of limitations. And after his release, he continued his missionary activities, probably even went to Spain, as he said that he desired to do in Romans fifteen twenty-four. And a few years later, he was arrested a second time, this time placed in the Mamertine dungeon in Rome. And tradition says that they took him out in 68 AD and cut his head off. But you know, that isn't the way Luke closes this story. Instead, it ends with a dot, dot, dot. Because Paul passed the baton on to people like Timothy and Titus. And they passed it on to faithful men who were able to teach others also. And the story goes on. And that's why I love the last word in this book. It's the word unhindered. Though Paul was hindered by his chains, the gospel was unhindered. It was in the first century, and it still is today. It can't be stopped. And fresh and wonderful chapters are still being written as the gospel continues to impact the lives of people and as the Holy Spirit continues to work through His church today. And so as we close this study in the book of Acts, I want to remind you that today we still have the same message. And today we still have the same power source, the Holy Spirit. And so the question to ask yourself this morning is how is my chapter going to read? Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word today. And we thank you for this great book that shows us this first chapter of church history. And Father, we know there were many between then and now. And we know that You are still active today empowering us to be Your witnesses in this world. And Lord, as we go from here, we pray that You might make us conscious that we are actually in the process of writing another chapter of Your story of working through Your church in this world. Father, cause us to be a positive, positive page in the history of your church. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.